Hello and welcome to the Story X Story podcast, where we discuss stories across pop culture, plus give you advice on creating your own. It is episode number 91, and by my math, that puts us just nine episodes away from 100. But until then, I am still your co-host, Nigel. I am Tazzy, content creator and co-host. And here with us to talk about The Mandalorian, the amazing two-season show um, we're going to get into the Star Wars universe with Rena McKeith, art director for Trees Please Games. Rena, welcome back to the show for, I think this is a, a hat trick of appearances, if my memory <laughs> serves. Yeah, you can't get rid of me now. Um, no, yes, <laughs> it, thank you so much for having me back and onto the subject. I absolutely love a big Star Wars fan, so a big fan of Mandalorian. Um, so, so glad that you welcomed me back for this one. Yeah, we like to think of our show as a a sticky show. It's like once you once you get some of us on, you can't get it off. So we're also just as uh, happy to have you back on. Makes it easy for booking guests if you've been on. I don't need to explain much how this works. So it's in our interest as well. But um, yeah, we are happy to have you. Uh, Rena was last on the podcast for episode sixty, uh, where we discussed soul, and I believe or at least I had an existential crisis. Uh, either while talking about it but certainly while watching it that's a whole other thing you can uh check that episode out uh make sure you subscribe to story x story on apple podcast on spotify and wherever you get your podcast from you can also send us feedback and questions to feedback at mymatter.com drop them in our discord or throw them at us on social media we are at mymatter on twitter at mymatter tv on instagram and tiktok or at tazzy on all the above like I mentioned, this is going to be a retrospective on The Mandalorian two seasons. But before we get into today's story discussion, let's update you with the latest from the My Matter universe. This is actually the last recording. This is the last recording session that we're doing for 2021 as we near the end of season three of the podcast. So that means you're going to get episodes for the rest of December, the rest of or all of January. But through the magic of time and technology, we have recorded a bunch. So you're going to get our roundup episodes where Tazzy uh, and I discuss our favorite stories of the year. You're going to get uh, highlights, the best bits from uh, the whole year, which I've just about managed to squeeze into like two hour edit or thereabouts. And then you're going to get some bonus episodes over January until we start recording season four, which feels weird to say, season four of the podcast in February 2022. So a little bit of a scheduling note there. Um, I've mentioned this and will continue to mention this because we have finally finished uh, our latest manga. Got it in just before the end of the year. So Serious Through the Fog is available for purchase. We have both the standard and limited collection edition um, copies available through our website uh, and through Etsy uh, as well. And this is what has come about from our Kickstarter in 2020. Uh, and it's a story, quote unquote, inspired, for lack of a better word, uh, by the pandemic. So it's a pandemic-related uh, story uh, featuring the characters from Volume 1 of Sirius uh, having to deal with uh, what we're having to deal with, basically, and continue to deal with frustratingly. But anyway... So that's our manga for 2021. Uh, looking ahead to next year, we're going to be working on 11th Hour, which is going to be our next big uh, story, uh, next big volume. But we're also going to be working on smaller stories, including that one featuring Tazzy's character. So we're going to be creating a new series 
uh, called Origins until I think of a better name or just uh, accept that one and stick with it. But our characters that uh, we've turned into anthropomorphic characters in the Mayamada universe, uh, we're going to uh, dig into their stories and create uh, new manga titles for that. So look out for that as well. For the gaming fans, we have our final games night of the uh, of the year, which is happening today. If you're listening to this as the podcast comes out, um, if you are, then watch the VOD and consider becoming a Studio 77 member so you can support what we do at My Matter and also get involved with game nights for the next year as well. Uh, you can also check out our previous games nights where we have played games such as Roblox, Fortnite, Rocket League, Identity V, and I feel like I'm missing one. Mm, I know we played Roblox twice. Anyway, follow us on YouTube and you can find out and see how we play games, um, especially when the games are new uh, to me. So, uh, And then in January, we have our next headline event. We have Gamepad Online on the 15th of January, which will be live on Twitch and hosted by Tazzy. So as we do for our Gamepad Online events, we will have our Friendly Fire competition where different teams from communities uh, across the world will compete in a good-natured, inclusive, casual esports competition. They will be playing Brawlhalla, Rocket League, and Knockout City. We will also be doing uh, another round of interviews, including my discussion with Saida Mirzova. So she is a producer at Don't Nod Entertainment, who are famous for Life is Strange, among other titles. So I had a good conversation with her. You'll be able to check that out. Uh, along with others at the event. And we've got a special project that we are preparing to launch in the new year. So definitely stick around for this event. You can hear a little bit more about that just before we launch it. The tickets are free. And uh, again, we'll be doing a new piece of artwork to mark the event where the high-res versions will be going to our Discord community. And one lucky ticket holder will get a printed canvas version. So make sure you get your tickets, even though the event is free. So you'll be in a chance uh, to win that canvas print. And that's all we have for the year and some things we've got looking forward to next year. So you're all caught up. Let's now talk about our main story discussion. Today, we're going to be talking about The Mandalorian, both seasons, which is a space Western television series created by Jon Favreau and starring Pedro Pascal and, of course, Baby Yoda. It's the first live-action series in the Star Wars franchise and takes place five years after the events of Return of the Jedi. So, spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about all 16 episodes. Well, not all 16 episodes in order. We're going to be, you know, jumping about, but... We're going to be uh, talking about all the spoilers, all the details that we can remember. And if you don't want it spoiled, this is your chance to get out. Um, for everyone else, stick around. So before we get into looking at the characters, the world building, the technology, I'll just recap the, the general sense of what is happening. Like I mentioned, this is a story beginning five years after Return of the Jedi and the fall of the Galactic Empire. The Mandalorian follows Din Djarin, a lone Mandalorian bounty hunter in the outer, outer reaches of the galaxy. He is hired by remnant Imperial forces to retrieve the child Grogu, aka Baby Yoda, but instead goes on a run to protect the infant. While looking to reunite Grogu with his kind, they are pursued by Moff Gideon, who wants to use Grogu's connection to the Force for bad guy purposes. Um, that's all you need to know. But um, 
I feel like I should have had like Star Wars music in going up. I'm going to have to do that. In the, I'm not going to do that in the edit. But just use your <laughs> imagination. Just imagine some Star Wars music going on there. So where to start? Uh, I think for me, and I'll kind of throw this uh, out to both Tazzy and, and Rina, I am not. I like Star Wars. Uh, I have no claim to being the biggest or most knowledgeable, certainly not the most knowledgeable Star Wars fan. And I've always felt there's some barrier to entry with the Star Wars universe, probably similar to what some people will feel after 10 years of the MCU, where you feel you need to know a certain amount before you can fully enjoy the new trilogy or whatever it might be. And I didn't get this with this series. So for me, this is Star Wars without the baggage. And for both of you two, I don't know what your level of Star Wars knowledge fandom is, but how did you feel in terms of like the barrier to entry, uh, if at all, in getting into the show? Like how accessible was it for you? For me, like I like Star Wars, but mainly just because I like droids and zooms and lightsabers. <laughs> you mean like the sound <laughs> effect zoom or just like... <laughs> yeah, literally the sound effect zoom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I like the lightsabers and the action, but like the in terms of like detail storyline, I'm like, yeah, I don't really know, need to fully understand that stuff. I'm here for the fun. Uh, but Mandalorian was like, oh, I'm really into it. Like, I feel like I should have paid more attention in the films. <laughs> so it's made you want to go back and understand more. Yeah. Okay. And how about you, Rina? So I think. As with many people, Star Wars was one of my first forays into science fiction, which became a huge love for mine. And it was a really popular genre in my house. And my brother was a huge Star Wars fan. So he had all the models and he had the books and he was reading all the lore. I'm not quite that far in to Star Wars. I was one step back, perhaps. And certainly... I was interested in the animated shows. Um, so, for instance, Clone Wars and Rebels. But I was just missed it, I think. Um, in terms of age, I was just a little bit too old. And so while they were coming out, I, I didn't start watching them. And now, having seen The Mandalorian, I really regretted that. Because there's so much in, in The Mandalorian which references Clone Wars and, I think, um, Rebels, which came after and I mean, I don't think you need it. I certainly didn't feel like I, I missed that information, but I didn't have the same passion for some of those characters who came in, especially in season two, that I saw on the fandom, people getting very excited. But I think whether you'd seen those shows or not, um, the visual identity of them was so strong that even, I mean, I don't know if you recognize some of the characters but i certainly recognized uh, ashoka from the visual design being so strong and when i heard that she was going to be in this season i was like who and then i saw the image and i went ah i know exactly yeah so i think that's my kind of limit i know obviously the first three incredibly well first three films not a huge fan of the prequels and uh yeah quite knowledgeable about the rest of the, the sort of the solo and, and all of those other ones that have come after so i think that's kind of my i feel like that doesn't make me a super fan definitely not a super fan but perhaps a little bit more excited about it than maybe you were 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I was excited by other people's excitement, so I was like there must be something going on here. And then for me, it was a case of interestingly, I don't, I can't, I didn't watch all of like the original original trilogy, um, and I know I knew that from when the latest trilogy came out. But I remember my first like conscious thought of Star Wars was actually the prequels, which is not a good place to start because I remember going to see the Phantom Menace and then I saw the others and just thinking like. I don't know what the big deal is. <laughs> like, I don't know what people are so excited about. Obviously, not the best place to start, but eventually sort of caught up on, on everything and then got a, more of an understanding. Uh, interestingly for me, the, the most excited, mo- the earliest excitement around Star Wars for me was the Knights of the Old Republic game, which I absolutely loved. And we actually, uh, which I'm currently playing. Yeah, of course. Yeah, on the Switch, right? The remake, remaster, one of those Re- words. Remake. Remake. I think remake. Yeah. There you go. So that for me, because I, I I love like single player narrative, that format of of RPG game, and the Star Wars overlay on top of that, it just like it just worked uh, for me so well. So that's where my interest uh, was. So sort of fast forward to the Mandalorian. I like the sound of it, so I was kind of somewhat bought in but not necessarily excited until I started watching. Uh, so like I mentioned, this is the first live action Star Wars series. But uh, what I found when putting together the notes is that George Lucas began development on a live action Star Wars series known as Underworld in early 2009. And apparently more than 50 scripts were written for the series by 2012, but it was ultimately deemed too expensive to produce. That's why you get Disney because uh, they just open the wallet and then, make that kind of stuff happen so this is just imagine a wallet opening and just like all this money flying out yeah but with uh, mickey mouse on the label <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say mickey mouse opening the wallet just come in and say like <laughs> which just pull out this uh, mickey mouse obviously mickey mouse has a wallet with his own face on it but just uh having a lot of money just say how much do you need and then we'll make this happen so that's at least that's how i saw the meeting in my head going so <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that George Lucas 2009 because I think this is this is terrible but in my opinion my personal opinion Star Wars is best when George Lucas isn't writing it <laughs> why do you say um, that because I, I and again uh, the, the prequels <laughs> trilogy but uh, why do you say that because I hear a lot of people with the same sentiment I think if you look at the, the films that make the biggest impact in my opinion are the ones which he didn't write. So he wrote A New Hope, and that was a fine movie. Nothing. I mean, obviously it set the stage, and and but it didn't have the depth of the interest of the complexity that I yeah, think you get. Yeah, very straightforward. It's very straightforward, and, and nothing wrong with it, but it's, it sets the scene. It does what it needs to do. But there's a, a sort of step up, in my opinion, in, in drama and sophistication that you get in uh, The Empire Strikes Back and The Return of the Jedi that I think benefited from the fact that he is a wonderful world builder but not necessarily the best screenwriter that as uh, my feeling and, and the prequel films smack of of george lucas having an an unbridled hand like no one telling him <laughs> no don't maybe not and if you want there's some absolutely fantastic footage of george lucas getting terribly excited by some of his ideas in um the prequel movies and there's a whole team of people looking very nervous in the background oh, really? <laughs> and not saying anything. Um, and I think that's that's the the benefit of having some reins on your creative outpouring and having a 
working as a team with other people who can balance you out and mm. challenge your uh, excesses and rein you in or push you in a different direction. And I think you see that in when he's collaborating. And I think when he has too much power and control over the product, they don't tend to be quite so good. So I worry about what a live action Star Wars driven by George Lucas would have been uh, without the guiding hands of maybe some of the other talents who came in later to sort of shift it and then challenge his expectations. Maybe we'd have gotten a lot more space politics and... And Jar Jar Binks. Jar Jar Binks and tax embargoes. (laughs) (laughs) That's an interesting thought. Um, Maybe scary, but yeah, interesting thought. And I mean, like I said, for me, this is a... So it's a show that it never made me feel I needed to know a certain amount to enjoy. I could just enjoy the story being told. And I think part of that, I mean, you mentioned the first, the very first film being relatively simple. And I feel in a sense, this is a, this is a simple show because I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just uh, you have this overarching protect the child uh, or get the child to safety plot. And then the series is structured in like a, uh, serialized procedural show so lots of self-contained stories that you can just enjoy moment to moment as well as being this overarching plot as well as being this overarching plot in the star wars universe so i feel like there's different levels so tazzy what did you think of the format of the show and the way it kind of laid out the story um yeah i agree i think it is uh quite i don't know if simple is the right word but easy to follow very easy to follow and I feel like it's less that it's that it's simple and more that you've got a character that doesn't really know much and is quite or care much. Yeah. Is quite sort of like distant from it all, that's kind of taken it in like you are. Oh okay. I feel like there's still a lot of like complexities about it. But you're seeing it from a very simple point of view, and that's why it feels like it's simple but it's not just just palatable yeah i mean there is a lot going on and like you say the the main character he's got a few names but i'm gonna go with mando i always like that yeah that name for him it makes him sound like a uh, early 2000s grime artist to me but <laughs> quite like that name so i'm gonna go with mando but um he yeah like you say he's quite distant so he's, he's doing his own thing essentially he's trying to survive and then obviously that all changes when he uh, essentially adopts uh, grogu but in a sense, like the format, like you say, just makes it, yeah, just easy to easy to follow. So I guess because there is a lot going on, it's just very easy to follow in the way they structured it. And I feel like you're not missing out if you don't get everything. I feel like there's a lot in it. I feel like I miss a lot that's in it because people oh, yeah. like lose it over stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> oh, all this, like all these hidden details, all these Easter eggs or whatever. And I'm just like, yeah, I have no idea of what you're talking about, but this show is great. Great, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel I was the same. I was, I was like, because as uh, Rena said with uh, Ashoka, I, was like, I recognized her. I didn't, I didn't know the character or necessarily the significance, but I definitely recognized the style. So, especially in that second season, there were moments where I'm sure mm-hmm. thing like people watching it getting really excited. Um, the way you know, I would have, I don't know, got excited seeing Captain America pick up Thor's hammer Mm -hmm. but not necessarily picking up on it but being able to enjoy it so I mean like Rena did you get I imagine you got more of the references than maybe (laughs) I I would have I think I got some more but I I loved how they 
approached this this world building in in, in the Star Wars Mandalorian because it was uh, there was hints. It did feel like fan service to me in the same way that maybe later films did, but rather there were touches and Easter eggs and little things that if you knew and recognized them you could feel smart that you spotted it but it you didn't re- didn't require you to know that to really enjoy it and i think one of the times when it really struck me that they were doing this well was when in season one they go to tatooine and there's just these moments where they reference gentle references that you're like oh so obviously the first time you're in Tatooine and A New Hope, there's stormtroopers everywhere. But instead of mentioning, oh, we kicked all the stormtroopers out or something, they just have helmets on spikes. I mean, I hope there are helmets and not heads, but anyway, <laughs> helmets and spikes. And you, you sort of go, oh. And then when they go into Moss Eisley, there's a, instead of saying, no droids allowed, there's a droid bartender. And you sort of get these moments where if you're kind of, it tunes to the world. You could pick up on these the things that they're kind of leaving for you so you can make connections between the grander story that you see in the films and the story that they're seeing here. But I think the underlying feeling for me was nostalgia. I felt like the whole show had this nostalgic vibe. And that's why the format of episodic serialized fits so well makes you think of those like 80s and 90s monster of the week shows where yes there is a kind of overriding plot but they're not so complex that it's trying to tease you out like six hour movie over the course of six episodes but no they're allowing each episode to be almost standalone and enjoy it as it is but it's probably also because it's it's for families Maybe it's a bit much to ask a whole family to sit through eight episodes where every single episode leads directly on to the next. And there's a complexity to the plot that you need to sort of watch and be paying attention. Whereas if you're giving, you know, 30 minutes of your time or 45 minutes of your time, the whole family can sit down and enjoy. So I think there's maybe some of that to it as well, that the format is more accessible. And it's one of those things where TV and specifically maybe streaming uh, services streaming television is providing a a format uh, and a situation where people can enjoy this type of story and this type of story can be told in a format that fits for it so it doesn't become doesn't have to become too much you don't need to watch i know what it used to be like 24 episodes like it had to be 24 episodes and of a certain length like regardless of if you had the story but here you can do eight episodes in a season if that's how much is needed which is obviously too much for one film but just right for oh i can sit down like you say with the family uh, and watch this and then you can build the format uh, around that so yeah i just think it, the, the format like really really works it just fits for the story that's being told and obviously we want to talk about the story but um obviously can't go too far without speaking about the show from a technical perspective and i just say like just stepping back and just looking at television like the level that television has got to just in general is just amazing like i think i feel like i must have said this before on the podcast but this is the kind of like production level like you had to put on shoes and go somewhere to watch <laughs> like you have to go to a cinema like i'm just at my in my house watching amazing uh visuals uh, amazing production and uh, not having to go anywhere 
to to go see it. It's like the level of television is just ridiculous. And I feel the Mandalorian specifically, like the production of it, where the way they shot it is something that is new, which I don't fully understand yet. So maybe really you can fill in some of the blanks. But as I understand, like the way they shot it in what's called the volume, which is a 20 feet tall, 270 degrees around and 75 feet across space where both motion capture and compositing take place. So essentially you've got like this, it's not even an array of screens, it's like one continuous screen where they can render scenes in real time. So you can be on set like wherever your story takes place in real time. So rather than having to say shoot on green screen and then apply the background and everything, you're applying the background, you're making changes at the same time that actors are are doing their acting thing. And this is all using this volume and the Unreal Engine, which is, yeah, just it just looks amazing. It's absolutely incredible. I, I was blown away when I started looking into how this is made and what it means for for the production of film. Because you've got this, not only have you got this interactive space, and I think that's what's so incredible about it. It's not static, it interacts. You can you can trigger things at, at a moment's notice. You can react to the way the camera is moving in the scene to allow for the position of the camera so they can, if it turns, they can adjust the background to compensate for that. So they're tracking the camera, they're tracking if it's zooming or not pulling back and adjusting for that so that it really comes alive with the actors on set. So already you can see what an incredible advance that is over maybe the matte paintings of, you know, 60 years ago or more, and certainly far beyond green screen. I mean, they still would have to do small amounts of green screening, but the challenge with the green screen is is obviously all the compositing happens later. And then you've got this bright green light. So you have light bouncing off this really green plane and then everywhere it hits, it's it, that bounce light is is coloring the actors green. So you have to compensate for that. And and often you'll find you'll see this also in um in any film or TV that uses a lot of green screen that the lighting can be very um, flat and off. And then if there's an explosion in compositing, you don't get that. They have to cheat all that light hitting the actor. Whereas in in this. If an explosion happens on the screen, all that light is being cast onto those lovely reflective surfaces of Mando's armor, and it all feels much more holistic and real. And so, it's, yeah, it's, it's really incredible. So even just from that perspective, but then when you take that step into how they're doing it and realize that they've got this 24-hour turnaround, almost that it, they can design and build an environment and it can be on set 24 hours later, you know, that even on set, the director can go, oh, I don't really like the placement of that tree or the placement of that mountain. And it can be moved for you. <laughs> a 3D artist can just go and move it. And, and now your mountain is in a nicer happen. place, you know. Literally. You can you can suddenly be shooting a sunset for 50 hours if you want. You know, all these things which kind of change how how film is made. Um, I think it's it's such an incredible tool. And they were talking also about how it, it brings everyone together at the same moment. You've got special effects artists can be involved. You've got the set designers, the compositors and the director can all, can all be sort of talking together 
and working much more collaboratively on the shoot. Whereas before, it's it's much more sort of like a waterfall pipeline. You shoot the actors with the green screen and then it goes to compositing and then it goes to the effects and so on. Whereas this allows that to be much more um, collaborative pipeline as well. So I, I think it's a really interesting approach. Mm. Like them using the Unreal Engine, which for maybe for a lot of people uh, listening to this would associate that with video games and maybe video games only. It's like, it's kind of that, crossover where games are getting to a point where the technology used to make games is now being used to make films they're all one and the same or at least that's the impression i get from that i don't know what you think tazzy is there yeah i definitely this is just this is like one of the things that is just showing how how close the two mediums are related now because it's not the only bit of technology that's that's used um in games and and filmmaking and there's a lot that's sort of like crossing over between both realms either from film and tv and being used in games or um, something that's initially uh, or predominantly used in games and then being used in tv and film which is is really cool because i feel like when we when we use both of those things it means that both mediums are driven uh further and also uh, means that there's more ways to have inclusivity and representation in those things in both areas. Get those transferable skills over, jump, do uh, work in one, jump over to the other. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And so for me, as I was like reading about this, and there's a video I came across, which I'll put in the show notes, show notes that talk about that production process and the difference that it makes, as uh, Rena was saying. And uh, the thing that got to, uh, that came up in my mind is that we recently did an episode on the Eternals, and I remember reading the director uh, Chloe Zhao. She insisted on visiting real-world locations, and obviously, we, we shared our thoughts and variety of thoughts in that. And I'm sure uh, it's a film that's quite divisive. But in terms of like the experience of watching it, I remember watching it, and similar to Dune, got a real sense of place. Definitely felt like. I was in these real places that uh, the scenes took took part in, and with the this move to more sort of digital um, focus, I don't know if there's a if there's a preference if there'll be like a a group of people who are like no we must go to the real place and there'll be a group of people uh, led by John uh, Favreau like nah we'll just go to the volume arena uh, I don't know have you you haven't seen you mentioned you hadn't seen Eternals have you seen Dune. I have seen Dune, and I actually thought this was, Dune was a really interesting example of this when you were sort of mentioning, we were thinking about talking about this, because of course, Cher is a cinematographer, Greg Fraser, right? He worked mm. on both. And I think you can actually see that, you can see the, his, uh, his stamp on both of them. And I, I think this, this is going to be such a cliche, but I don't think there's any right way or wrong way of making a movie or making a piece of art. And you get these pros and cons both because of course yes if you go on site you're going to get more interesting lighting and more interesting effects and, and dune they they sort of did that with making sure that even when they did green screen it wasn't green it was sand screen i think they said the sandy color and did a lot of work with their compositing there when they were building out their environments and but there's a consequences like there are consequences to shooting on location you know, it makes me think of The Revenant, right, where 
they were so obsessed with shooting on location, which which gave it such a beautiful visual look. But they only had a couple of hours of shooting time because it's northern Canada. And then they ran over budget and they ran over time and they ran out of oh, snow. Really? And they had to go somewhere else because the snow had melted. They had to go. I think it was um, South America. They had to go to somewhere else to finish the shoot because there's no more snow. And you can't have a film about snow yeah. <laughs> without snow in it. Um, and I, I think that's that's where it's going to really, it's, it's going to be hard to fight. Like I'm sure Chloe Zappel felt this. It's hard to fight for your real world locations, which are so expensive and time consuming and um, unpredictable when you have something which has this comfort of being in, so in control and and being able to change things at a moment's notice and set up a, a shoot in sandy desert in the morning and then in the icy plains in the afternoon and being able to do all that. So I think from a production costing perspective, um, I can understand why people will start going towards this virtual uh, space, sort of um, yeah. 3D space. But and, and I think as the technology improves, it'll be harder to tell those things apart as well. And so it'll be really interesting to see how this goes. Um, but yeah, I think I think for for a film which is going to have so much artificial elements anyway, with spaceships and wampas and you know AT or or whatever they got the names of them, but the, the you know, big robots in it, it's hard to argue for the necessity yeah the real, <laughs> need, to, need to find this planet <laughs> i insist yeah. so. let's fly to mars and film there it's so realistic <laughs> yeah no that that makes sense of course like when it comes down to you know budgets and timelines and everything it, it will just make sense especially as the technology gets better uh, i mean the revenants is, is an interesting one because that's another film where uh, i remember watching that and just feeling a real sense of place uh, in that in that story and i guess there is something to being in the place but yeah and i imagine it will be a, a case of both like you'll you have a mix and maybe over time it, it, you just might lean more towards the virtual and then if particularly needed okay then we can we can go somewhere but yeah just the way they put this together and i encourage everyone to sort of take a look at the sort of the production behind the scenes using uh, this for the Mandalorian because yeah I could just see this changes things going forward. Um, apparently John Favreau sort of worked on his technologies doing when he was doing The Lion King, which was not a good film, but if it helped get this, then that is a necessary sacrifice, I guess. In terms of like the technology being used to create the the world, this is definitely, of course, it's Star Wars. There is a lot of world building. And like I said at the beginning, this is something where, for me, the world building, even the prior world building specifically, didn't get in the way of the enjoyment of this story and the world of this particular uh, story. And I think the key thing from a narrative perspective is that everything that is happening is is happening. There's things that have happened before. There's kind of consequences to actions during, but it's all about how all these things affect the characters that you care about like what are their motivations how do their actions impact like their relationships with uh, other characters so i always feel that's the best way to approach it because if you if you care about the the characters and their journey then then ultimately you'll care about the story regardless of what's happening so that's one of the things that made me interested in in the wider 
uh, universe. And I imagine for people who do know more about the wider universe, they can see the nods, uh, like Rina mentioned, as they're being uh, as they're being mentioned. So, and that's something for me. The latest films, like the latest trilogy, I don't know how you both feel about the latest trilogy, but I didn't. I don't know. It didn't necessarily do that for me. Maybe just because I didn't care about the characters as much. It, it felt like it almost felt a bit like. Arena, uh, you mentioned sort of fan service. The the balance between story and fan service was a bit off in the latest ones. Yeah, I mean, I'm in two minds because the new ones were so much better than the prequels. I oh, think oh, I yeah. went into yeah. them just being, like, oh, these are going to be dreadful, and then they weren't dreadful, and I was so relieved that maybe I gave them a little bit more credit than they deserved. I don't hate them, that's for sure. Mm. I think what I found with the sequels, the latest trilogy. It felt that, you know, they have this challenge with Star Wars to give the fans what they're looking for and satisfy what they think Star Wars is and also subvert those expectations and give them something new. And for me, I found the latest trilogy too repetitive in the sense that it felt like they were really going over old ground and almost telling the same story. I mean, The Force Awakens, they're almost like <laughs> frame for frame telling the same story exactly and that felt very odd to me and at the same time then i have this sort of abhorrence to coincidence at a galactic scale i mean how tiny is this galaxy they're always running into the same people and that actually drives me nuts and that feels like fan service <laughs> when you turn a corner and oh there's chewbacca and turn the next corner and go oh there's or and they're everywhere and it's just like the world is really large and <laughs> the galaxy is infinitely larger again this should not happen um and it strains credulity and that's i think what makes it starting to feel really like fan service and then at the same time they annoy so many of the fans by undercutting things that they feel really passionate about very strange but i don't actually mind it too much um but i think you're so right the mandalorian does a much better job of this by sidestepping that problem and telling a very distinct story like just allowing it to take place in the same universe but not touch uh that much the the characters we know and love and able to tell a parallel story and i have a i have a big fan of stories about ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances far more than I am a fan of extraordinary people's stories whereas you know the the one hero to save the world is not as much my cup of tea as as this one which is a much more interesting slice of the world and um, so I, I very much enjoyed this sort of expansion of the universe like they're they're not repeating they're expanding and giving you a different different look at the same places yeah, I, and I do remember Tazzy at the time the series was out and Tazzy was talking about it and you mentioned, I'm going to paraphrase, but you're here so you can correct me if I get it wrong, but you said something about like stories where if you have this massive event like a war, in, in this case, or the aftermath of a, of a war, there are people living normal lives and like a story that takes a look at their perspective of people just trying to get by day to day while a, a massive overarching that event is taking place like did i did i get that right yeah i think that's pretty much what i said there you go <laughs> <laughs> so yeah no i i appreciated that perspective that this story takes is just there's stuff happening but you care about mando you care about baby yoda and i'll follow the story where they go yeah i love it um, it's a bit like i'm gonna bring another film into it it's a bit like in free guy okay before 
he gets the glasses. <laughs> the NPCs. I mean, yeah. The and the NPCs, NPCs are just living their lives while, like, obviously, players are just all this craziness is going on behind them. It's kind of like, do, 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 do. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's that kind of thing. It's what, what are they doing? What's going on in their heads? And I love that. I love the things that take away from the main, not take away from the main event, but aren't focused on the main event, like shift the perspective. And I think that makes something more re- relatable because in our daily lives, uh, it's kind of what's happening, right? We're, we're the everyday people. Yeah. Well, there's all this crazy big stuff happening, but either way, our day-to-day lives still have to function and we still have to live. And I feel like um, that's what ni- that's what's nice about the Mandalorian. Granted, like um, Mando kind of has like a very interesting life and is a main character. He's not necessarily your average, yeah. <laughs> average everyday Joe. <laughs> but he definitely interacts with your average everyday Joes and he's somewhere in between and a, a bit of a like nomad. So gets to see a lot more. You get And like you said, the, he because he doesn't, he either doesn't know, doesn't care. He's just distant from things. He kind of he's learning. So we, as the viewer, kind of learn about things as he's learning about them, and sort of as things come to his attention. And one of the things I made a note because, like, when it comes to sort of making stories and some of this, like, as I as I was watching this, I was thinking about some of the sort of my amount of stories that I'm soon to be working on, or uh, yeah, that uh, will be worked on, and how they do the world building on different levels. So you have the the wider events that are taking place and then the individual uh, stories and how you how you connect the two and how one can inform the other. So very early on, like uh, you find out things that impact the wider world but matter to on our level, like to, to Mando. So I think early on you, you learn that the uh, the Imperial credit is is worthless. So clients are no longer willing to pay like the high bounty hunter guild prices. So that leads to few low paying gigs and it just the economic stability and it forces uh, Mando to take these under the table dangerous jobs that kind of ultimately lead him to uh, finding Grogu. And it's that how you take the, is it the macro to the micro? I think that's the right way around. But is that how do you get the, the big world building events but made them matter to the characters in your story. I think that's worth remembering for anyone who's you know, making a story that has a, a lot of world building. We don't always need to know about you know, the history of uh, your, your world, just how does it affect these characters and one can inform the other. I really love this, this time. Um, and I feel like that I actually wanted, I didn't know that this period existed in the Star Wars lore. And I was sort of disappointed that the, um sequel trilogy didn't wasn't set in a time like this because we have in the original trilogy this very aspirational and kind of naive excitement about bringing down the evil empire and how great everything's going to be once those bad guys are gone and the world is going to be so much better hurrah and this is just not the case you've the of course it's not great you've had this huge empire keeping everything kind of controlled and stable and lacking freedom. But, you know, the trains ran on time or whatever. Yep. <laughs> yeah. all falling apart. Yeah, very important for those trains. People the get upset when the trains don't run like on time. The empire, but the trains <laughs> ran on time. You know? um, and, and you get this chaos. And 
I much prefer this setting because it's it's interesting to watch the the rebels struggle to manage the universe that they now have, this galaxy under their control and bring order to the chaos that's happening. And every all the ordinary people, like you're saying, Tazi, all the normal people are trying to live their day lives going suddenly not having currency that they can use or there's warlords marching in and mining conglomerates coming and attacking your town because there's nothing keeping them in check. And I think that's that's why this setting is so interesting. And you can see Again, you're seeing the rebels from outside that group looking at them, looking, you see them interact in your world, but you're not part of that community. And it's really interesting to see this other side of these naive, but well-meaning <laughs> rebel forces. <laughs> I think it um, helps to, well, I don't know, maybe just me, maybe uh, other people, it doesn't transfer beyond the realm of Star Wars, but it kind of like... We have so many, we watch a film and we see like the the heroes beat the villains and it's all very black and white and you kind of have like this one-sided perspective. But I hope that it helps people to like look at things from a different perspective. It's like, yes, the the hero narrative and the the like your view or that one view that might well and truly be the good, but even good has it's not black and white. Even good has consequences, like you said, Irina. And it's kind of just shifts the perspective and fills in the gaps. And with such a big franchise that does have such a hero focus, to then be like, here you go. Here's like all the in-between and all the, the broken and fractured bits that happen um, when a big change happens. And it's kind of cool, but like it also just shows that even even when good comes, like there has to be a moment of like brokenness, and then you heal from that. Yeah, I don't know. I've kind of forgotten the point I was trying to make. <laughs> I, I, I get what you, I think I get what you're saying in that. Like you can have the we all living in grey, so you have this. Yeah, the the uh, empire has fallen and the the big bad has gone, but the now now the train's fifteen minutes late. And actually, I need that to go to work. And now I'm, I don't know, being fired from my job as a space bartender, whatever it is. I don't know where I was going <laughs> with that analogy. But basically, that you're seeing the, the impact, the effects of this this big action and from a different perspective. In this case, I guess uh, we see some of the lower level NPCs, um, how they how their lives have are changing as a result of what the quote unquote good guys have done. Mm. I mean, even even just the, again to go to that Tatooine moments, but you get this whole new perspective on the Tusken Raiders, which I really enjoyed because in the in the original films they're just these nasty people who live in the dunes who attack you all the time um, and steal your stuff and kill your family or whatever. And then Mando shows a completely different side of them. Yes, they're dangerous and violent and they might kill you, but it's their planet. <laughs> they've lived there for thousands of years you're the ones who came to their planet and started like stealing their water and getting up in their dunes that presumably belong to them so like I said another good uh, dune uh, yeah. there. <laughs> but but you see this side because we're not part of that hero group anymore we're we're living the Mandalorian lives in the grey area much more than the Jedi's ever did 
uh, yeah, in between, not part of any one side, but sort of acting alone. And you, you, that, and because of that, he understands, you know, in the great episode, I think it's season two, where I think it's the Marshall, you know, he gets to, he gets to kind of bring these communities together and help them understand the differences between the mining community and these uh, Tuscan raiders. And of course, take out in a giant, like, sand, dragon or whatever yeah, it, it was i was gonna say it is a dragon isn't it uh, exactly uh, yeah <laughs> and i really liked those bits and this is kind of what i mean about when you're talking about world building about adding depth and breadth to the world rather than just retracing the same paths it doesn't right. feel like fan service to bring tuscan raiders if you're actually gonna undercut and subvert the version of them that you've had in the past because you're seeing them from a whole new perspective than maybe you've seen them before. That doesn't feel to me like fan service anymore. That feels like world building. Mm. Giving um so that's what you know parts of why I think it's it's so interesting what they're doing. Even when they're retreading the same ground, they're giving you a new perspective on it. <laughs> to call calling Jedi's what like sorceresses or like yeah mad weird magic sorcerers and you're like yeah they are aren't they they are weird <laughs> <laughs> i um love the episode with uh the jedi um i think the episode is literally called the jedi right oh with uh ashuka ashuka yeah and like just some of like the mando's comments on things it's so funny because like i'm not terribly knowledgeable but i'm there like He's like, oh, your your laser swords or something, and I'm like, lightsabers. They're called lightsabers. <laughs> <laughs> like he's so so distant. Like he's it doesn't, this whole doesn't thing is like so unknown to him. And um, even the fact that we're following the Mando from this. So from the beginning, we're like, oh yay, Mandalorian, Team Mando. And then we're like, oh wait, the Jedi's are the enemies of the Mandalorian? What? <laughs> like these two groups that in your head are like good <laughs> because you've you've got an attachment. Yeah, I had that as well. I was like, oh, okay, I didn't. Uh, yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and you're like, that doesn't make sense. Like <laughs> the Mandalorians of like uh, that actual Mando was a um, an orphan that they took in, mm. and it's like this whole creed of. Well, I guess then there's like the history of the Mandalorian and I don't fully understand it because there's the Mandalorian as a race and the Mandalorian as a, as a, really a, a face. Specific groups. Yeah, faith. That's, there's a word, yeah. But yeah, so you're just like, it's, it's, it's just so weird because you're like, no, wait, th- what? Enemies? No, no, they're both good. They're both good guys. How can <laughs> they be enemies? I don't get it. But yeah, and then just there's certain comments the Mando makes especially in that episode like yeah his powers and <laughs> and then she's just like yes that's that's the force yeah. <laughs> it's like oh yeah the magic <laughs> yeah one of my favorite quotes from the whole tv show is uh when grief Carga says come on baby do the magic hand thing it's <laughs> <Just like, laughs> one of my favorite things yeah exactly do the magic hand thing <laughs> We don't need to know what it is. <laughs> just just do it. it. Just do the magic yeah. hand thing. That's what we're all here for. We're here to wait, see Grogu do the magic hand thing. And we're just waiting for that <laughs> moment, please. Yeah. And as you, we could talk about the characters. You just say that because I had to check how how old Carl Weathers is. Because he's been around for a while. But he looks 40. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's some de-aging thing they're using on him. But uh, I was like, oh, wow. He's, he's still 
he's still going and he looks like he's just getting started <laughs> yeah that was an interesting uh kind of surprise for me as i was watching it but so many characters in this obvious place to start is the mandalorian and the child because it's a film film there we go <laughs> it's a series basically a film it's basically a film yeah <laughs> yes but it's a story about them and their relationship because you have Mando who has been tasked with a job, retrieve the child, get the child to the client, and he decides to go rogue. And as Tessie mentioned, uh, he is a an orphan. So I guess once he sees this child alone, kind of something triggers in him and he just decides to shoot the droid who he hates droids anyway. So that's not a problem. And then sort of take on the responsibility of uh, protecting this child. and. It reminds me of something I haven't actually read, but uh, I know of, which is a, uh, this is a story inspired by the manga series, Lone Wolf and Cub. I don't know if either of you have, have read that, but it's the, the story of a disgraced Shogun executioner who is forced to become a rogue assassin after his wife is murdered during a power grab by a local clan. And what I didn't know is that this story has actually been inspired by, and I think, uh, something that George Lucas oh. sort of uh, read and, and used as inspiration in the original as well. So that's pretty cool. I mean, there's a lot of Western properties that have been actually inspired by manga, which I always find funny just because in some spaces here in the West, manga is seen as in sort of a, a negative light, but a lot of the media that we consume is actually inspired by creators who were fans of different manga series so that's something that's on my list uh, to get to because i know it's like one of the sort of seminal manga series to read so i need to, need to do that i can need to add that to my list do you know what other storyline is well the starts of it it's kind of well yeah it's kind of like uh another story that we love on this podcast the last of us i was just thinking that too <laughs> <laughs> and it's a sort of reluctant reluctant buddy yeah father daughter father son relationship yeah that's true yeah and the kind of like they're they're like something inside them that's making them do it that they don't agree with that they're like i don't want to do this but kind of something inside them's like no you have to <laughs> <laughs> they're kind of got like an inner turmoil, uh, inner turmoil of, of yeah that's true caring yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a good point and i guess like Mando is or Joel is much more reluctant at the beginning than I feel Mando is at the beginning of his journey but yeah you do have that kind of um, task with protecting this uh, this child and, and getting them from A to B but then it sort of changes as, as we go on this journey so that's a good comparison I mean when the series started and it, and it came out and although I didn't watch it all I saw was Baby Groot so Baby Groot <laughs> Wrong, wrong franchise. <laughs> Same company, wrong franchise. Wrong franchise. <laughs> I mean, so go. I did see a lot of Baby Groot because it was like Baby Groot versus, versus oh, Baby Yoda. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Baby Yoda is what I meant <laughs> to say. Uh, I, I feel a Baby Yoda, uh, Grogu, is, is got the, the cute thing. That's a, that's a very cute Yoda type thing. I challenge anyone to watch that, that TV show and not go, no, every time he's on screen. <laughs> I yeah. almost it almost ruins the show. <laughs> so <laughs> obsessed with, with oh he's so cute like anything can be happening anything at all. Yeah. The uh, laser battles, blasters going, yeah. You know, Jedi fights and you cut to baby Yoda and you just go oh he's so yeah. cute. <laughs> he's so cute. I think there's one like when when Mando like 
wraps him up in like a little a little coddle thing and then just has him like in his pocket on his like on him it's just so cute but i feel like the um the uh, the who's cuter grogu versus baby oh my god you just said his <laughs> yes, name. Yeah. baby, baby Groot. Groot. yeah <laughs> is an unfair competition because baby Groot is still just a character in a film that's not about Groot. so if there was a rocket Groot live action okay. tv show <laughs> Uh, then then there'd be a fair competition <laughs> because you'd get all the cute moments and cute interactions that are making you think that uh, Grogu is cuter. I think they're both equal because like Groot does, baby Groot does dance like dances with the cassette and that's adorable, but Grogu is also adorable. Grogu eats stuff and he, like a child, <laughs> he'll put anything in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. Those scenes where he was eating that poor frog lady's babies. Oh, I was just going to say that. <laughs> over and over and over again. Oh. Like, Dude, stop. Mando, stop, baby Yoda, eating all of her kids. <laughs> Please. Because he's, he's, like, he just looks at them as well, which is just hilarious. He's like, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to eat this. <laughs> and he does not learn his lesson. I mean, that, oh. that episode is one of the ones that's sort of seared into my mind because it's got <laughs> the spiders. And he, I, and he was like, finally, yeah, Yoda, this is your learning moment. You know, Grogu, you eating something you shouldn't eat. Spiders come at you and he will learn and grow. But he completely doesn't because if he being left, with the frog lady at the end, and he is right back in there. <laughs> yeah. He wants those eggs. He has learned nothing. And if there's, uh, that's parenting, I think, in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> parenting of a toddler <laughs> in a nutshell. It's like, have we learned anything? Nope. No. <laughs> Not at all. I can also like crazy relate to Grogu's appetite. He just always wants to snack, and I'm yeah. there, right there with him. <laughs> and then I think what makes him really cool, apart from like all the cute moments, is that. Is essentially a, a puppet, so they use the like a physical thing for him rather than CGI, and I, I think that helped enormously, like get that across. Because I, I don't feel, I don't think there would have been necessarily the same connection if it had been CGI. Like just because it's a real thing, you just have that attachment to it. Yeah, I think as well it helps with Pedro Pascal's acting with it. Like if you're acting for a physical thing. Yeah, that looks like the thing that you're so, interacting yeah. <laughs> with, rather than you know interacting with like a green screen covered dummy or whatever. Ping pong on a stick. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. pong. Yeah. Like you can get that eye contact. You can get really, and there's a lot of like physical contact where you can really get that interaction and feel the weight and the just like everything. It just makes it more. It means the interactions and are realistic because there is a real object rather than weird like because you see it when things are cgi'd in um and there's like a especially when there's like a physical interaction or even when there's just like a, a look and you're like it's it's off it doesn't quite sit right and i think it has that connection then with the original trilogy which of course had puppets and miniatures and rather than cg because they don't have cg and i think i think it gives a style has a certain feeling associated with it. And I'm glad that they decided to do the puppet for Grogu because, again, it gives that the way it moves and, and reacts. And I think you wouldn't you wouldn't move him this way if it was in 3D and you had all the controls you could possibly do. Because there's moments when he's like climbing on a chair 
that are so oh. hilariously awkward. And that's because of the puppet, but it gives him his own character. And I'm glad yeah. they do. Yeah. And it's, it's the same. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to agree and, and say, because it doesn't, like with things like this, it doesn't need to be perfect, but there's a, I don't know, it's like a, a human thing that we can just perceive like what's real. And it's a similar kind of consideration, you know, like in video games, you have that uncanny valley where just mm-hmm. on a human level, you can just tell there's nothing behind the eyes, but it, it looks close enough, but it's not quite there. Whereas what you get with a puppet is that if you look at it just like cold, you can see moments where like you say it's awkward or whatever, but it doesn't need to be real and like perfect to convey the meaning and fit within the story. I think that's the the trade-off you get. And I feel this works where you just, because it's a physical Grogu, you can see it. You can see the, the other actors seeing it and it just fits in that way. And I think you can see with Yoda, I think if you look at the original Yoda and how he moves, and it, I think his characterization, obviously the films have aged, but I think his characterization still works and commands the screen mm. as a puppet. And then if you look at the prequel movies, they have him as a 3D guy doing like bat flips and <laughs> triple like hands and fighting with the lightsaber and it just feels wrong. Like it doesn't it it doesn't move in a way that you would expect from the way his body looks. And I think that really I remember watching that going, no. <laughs> Even at the time I was like, no. <laughs> that doesn't work. Whereas because they're constrained by the way the puppet looks, they they actually move him in a way that makes sense for the way his body is constructed. And I think that's part of what gives it that authenticity and physicality. You're not getting this uncanny valley or dissonance between the way it looks and the way it moves. It's a toddler. It will move awkwardly and probably fall over. That's to be expected. And his body is all squat with this enormous head. You would expect <laughs> it to move in a kind of top-heavy way. Or sometimes in 3D, you sort of forget the weight and the physicality in the freedom that you have to move it any way you want. And what I also like about their relationship is, like, Mando is a character, uh, at least for what I perceived, he he shows a an abundance of patience towards Grogu that he does not show to other characters there's moments where like Grogu's put something in his mouth or wherever it might be where he's just he just has this patience but then when he's interacting with other characters he's just he's the mercenary and he's the uh he's the killer and I, I always liked seeing that relationship where you have those moments where uh Mando would be a different character with Grogu than he would be uh with others yeah and because his He's like very consciously different with Grogu. Yeah. It really does look like the way I've seen kind of like dads that aren't quite ready to be dads interact with their kids. (laughs) (laughs) That they're like, is this, is this how I'm supposed to do it? Or like when they've been left alone with the kid for like, and they're not used to it. And they're kind of like, um, I think, I think this is the responsible, uh, like, like, thing to do here yeah <laughs> i'm not a hundred percent sure <laughs> I, I think i said this before he he does have a uh, single dad energy <laughs> throughout this whole <laughs> whole thing and just trying to do do the right thing um by the child but yeah there are a load of characters in this we don't have to go through every single one but are there characters that stood out to uh to both of you so start with tazzy i don't know if there's anyone like along this journey that stood out to you in, in terms of like 
their performance or their impact on the story? Um, oh, I forgot his name. Early on in the first season, the the guy that oh my god, what's his name? Right, let me just look it up and okay. come me. <laughs> okay, uh, Rita, are there any characters that stood out uh, to you in this journey? Well, I mean, one of my, <laughs> I don't know if they they stood out, but I I absolutely adored the stormtrooper scene. I don't know if you remember this scene, but there was um, two stormtroopers and they had Grogu in a bag. Oh, on the, and on they the, were yeah, absolutely yeah. hilarious. Oh, and that I forgot about that. They they're so off. Oh. I mean, they're punching Yoda, and I'm I'm just like, oh, how could you? And they're trying to shoot at a can, and they keep missing and looking at their guns like they're broken. Yeah, it's I love, one of love the funniest. that. I lo- and then I it's like, oh, um, Moff Gideon just shot a man for interrupting him. <laughs> it was, I just loved it so much. I'm here for scenes like that. Give me more. It was brilliant. I love that scene as well. Because I think it's just like, it's Stormtroopers, like, we know stormtroopers always miss and like we just there's it kind of just gives character to to all those stormtrooper moments that kind of like how why do they always miss and stuff like that it's like so exactly though what you were talking about reaching behind the curtain like you see all the stormtroopers and now you're actually meeting them and hearing about the fact that again they're just doing their day-to-day jobs and trying not to get killed by moth kidding (laughs) (laughs) do you want to He's like, should we just wait here for a bit? Yeah, let's wait till he calm down before we bring in the... <laughs> I don't want to interrupt him when he's busy in a bad mood. He'll shoot and kill us. You know, it's just like, yeah, yeah let's give it a minute. Um, and it just seemed like such an ordinary two people. Um, obviously horrible people. We know that because they punched Grog. But, uh, but yeah, I loved that bit. So I think those were those stood out for me. But and of course Moff Gideon, I think he was just a, such a fantastic bad guy. I think it's Star Wars, if it does anything well, it does really compelling villains. And I think from the moment he walked on set uh, and you see him at his entry, you're like, Yes, this is this is gonna be good. Yeah, um, he's one of those actors you just know you just know what you're getting. Yeah, and and to the point where I'm even at the end of season two, I'm like, did he want to get captured? Is this the plan? I I don't I <laughs> I'm sort of beginning to feel that it's all been orchestrated on purpose. He's got that sort of energy, <laughs> you know, big plan energy. I think they call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did like that. So I I also like the characters who. Uh, so I had um, the character he broke out, and then he had to go back for. And get on the final mission. Oh, is this Bill Burr? May- Mayfield? Bill Burr, yeah, that- yeah, Bill yeah. Mayfield. Yeah, so like him and then the other, the other Mandalorian crew. With Bo-Katan. Bo-Katan, yes. And then Cobb, because all those characters sort of, you know, talk about different perspectives. They all kind of made Mando question his, like his code and his mm. worldview in different ways. Uh, and I like that impact that they all had on him, like with with Cobb, because he, you know, you're not a Mandalorian. They start off like quite adversarial, but by the end, there's like a grudging respect. And then uh, with Mayfield, I mean, you know, he's a, a criminal, but he made some good points and he uh, made Mando question. And then with the uh, Bo-Katan and the other in the others in that crew, kind of have a they're Mandalorians, but they're of a different, I don't know, different creed, different 
whatever it was and a different, offered a different perspective to, to Mando to sort of ultimately evolve on his outlook by the end. Yeah, I thought that was a really powerful moment with um, Bo-Katan and she's essentially going, oh, he's from that cult. And you're like, wait, cult? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? And she's like, take off your helmet, dude. Yeah, no, it's, it's, <laughs> What's wrong with you? Like, not, oh, yeah, that okay, yeah, that does make sense. I mean, it's hard to even eat, right? I can't. <laughs> so, yeah. No, you're so right. I, I really enjoyed those scenes, too. Yeah. Um, Quill? Oh, Quill. Yeah. Hands down, favorite non favorite character that's not Mando or Grogu. Oh, the small guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, I liked him. I like characters like planet, that. Yeah. 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 Because he had that, he had that <laughs> wisdom. Yeah. And he was yeah. like, he was like a, a bad guy, but not on purpose yeah and because uh, and i remember they had that interaction where because he did him a favor essentially and and mando was like let me give you money but it was like no no i don't want to i don't want to go back into that kind of service thing i'm just doing it because it it needs to be done or i want to yeah. help you because i want to yeah i really like his character and he was like quite quite like you said he's like wise and he's lived and he just wants a peaceful life but he's like do you know what I gotta do this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like I do want my peaceful life, uh, but this, this is this is um, beyond that. This is kind of above my own needs. Yeah, I really like that character. That's a good, uh, yeah, that's a good one to highlight. And just he was just like, just the way he interacted with Mando just made me laugh. Kind of like an uncle. Yeah, he just had, he, like you said, the, the wisdom. He just knew he knew stuff, and Mando needed to know stuff. That's why they were kind of in the same place in time but then you're just giving them that perspective so again like a character that gives him a different perspective and then sort of by extension the the viewer in that scenario i do like that i like that oh, there's so many characters i feel like more characters are going to come up uh, as i bring up something i like doing and favorite or standout memorable episodes because there were a lot and i think I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I'm trying to think like what episodes to that. To me, there were so many. I will say though, I just got straight to the end because like I mentioned, where my knowledge of Star Wars is such that there were things that were happening, especially in the second season with characters being, uh, introduced that have like significance in the wider scope of things that might have gone over my head. But I know Luke Skywalker and, <laughs> uh, and when we got to the point of like, oh, we're going to finally meet the Jedi and the introduction. That Luke, I was like, oh, is that Luke Skywalker? I'm like, he's just taking out everyone. And I love the way in that final episode. I mean, the whole thing is is great for me because you have the the emotion of it because obviously uh, Grogu has been taken by Moff Gideon and Mando's like, I'm coming to get him. Like, I'm, I'm coming for you. So you have that whole kind of thing. But then to the point about the nostalgia, the kind of fan service, you then get, uh, the Jedi come and the way they set it up by having those android stormtroopers just shown to be so powerful, like so powerful that it's a struggle for Mando to take out one. And there's a whole bunch of them. And then in comes Luke Skywalker and just absolutely tearing the place up in a way that in that series, I mean, we've seen um, Ashoka. So we see some kind of lightsaber. We've seen some kind of Jedi abilities but then, you know, we haven't seen Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker comes out and just takes out the whole facility and just destroys the place. So, so that for me, that was the the one kind of like, okay, I get that. Like, I, I know who Luke Skywalker is. 
But I don't know if anyone had any of our standout moments over the over the two seasons. It was just so many. I was trying to decide which I know, one right? it's like, it's like... I enjoyed most. I I really liked. I think it was um, the prisoner season one. I think that's what you know that with Bill um, Bill Burr Mayfield and that crew because oh, yeah. it was oh, when just they first came out. Yeah, oh, right. it was just it was like this mixture between your typical breaking and entries, you know heist movie and then layering on top of that you know star wars and then it goes almost goes to like alien in the end where you see mando taking everyone down so sneakily and oh in all the different shots beautifully shot in the prison ship when he's sort of sneaking around the corridors and we don't know where he is and he's like a ghost (laughs) i just thought it was really lovely and you get a little bit of background on, on him at the same time so I really enjoyed that episode as one of the standalones. Yeah, and that was an example of an episode where this this show, like it does the the serialized, so it does the self-contained episodes, but episodes that feed into the wider narrative of the show. So that was something where you can enjoy it for the the heist, the breakout story uh, it was, but then you're also introduced to Bill Burr's character for later on. So you're getting a sense of who he is and who he is compared to Mando, compared to the other sort of group, the other crew that break him out. And then you're kind of, you meet with him later on. So I, I like that element of the the storytelling of this two seasons. I like that episode as well. And I think that episode is a good example of just like, by the way, just if you hadn't noticed yet, the Mando is pretty badass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> like, I feel like that's a lot just of what that episode known. is. <laughs> yeah, like, we're just gonna... Difficult situations, not a problem. Like, do not underestimate him. Yeah, because you're thinking like, wait, there's there's three or four of you. Why don't you just pick the guy out? Why do you need this guy? I was like, oh, that's why you need this guy. <laughs> yeah. And you're suddenly like, oh yeah, that's why he just—he's just on his own all the time. He's very yeah, because you're, you're slowing him down anyway. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't need the extra extra um, baggage and something else to worry about. And that you find out that he is kind of caring. And I think there's a lot of moments that he seems like he's someone that doesn't care, but he actually cares a lot. Yeah, he has a line, and in meeting those that other crew, you find out they—they they have no line. He has a yeah. line or like a, a code, a way of being. Which sort of brings me on to I, I, kind of a standout. It's hard to have a standout episode in a standout show. But the I've looked up the name of it, The Sanctuary, which is chapter four, when they uh, protect the, like the farming village. And he sort of teaches oh. them how to fight and everything. And just because... That's like I feel like that's the episode we see the most of, like the Mando soft side. Because yes, is it the the mother that kind of like this could be something? And he's like, no, no, I don't decode. This is the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't show my face and <laughs> and like just even then, I think that's the the real turning point for his connection with Grogu as well because of the way Grogu interacts with like the children and in the village and. He he does want to leave him behind at one point in that, and then it kind of like no, wait, can't. We're attached now. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? Yeah, the Last of Us has that moment as well. Actually, yeah, the uh, the deliverer realizes that they've become attached to the the package. Yeah, 
And then that like a, a negative standout moment for me is that I feel like I don't like the fact that we had a face reveal. I don't. I think it's okay. too. I think it's too early on for a face reveal, and I feel like that was, yeah, no, too early on. No, it didn't hit right. It missed the mark for me. The f- the first time or the last time, sort of in the final episode. We only have one face reveal, right? Of the Mando, like him taking off his helmet in front of other people on camera. There's a couple because in because they meet, they go with. Bill Burr's character, and he swaps uniforms, and then when they're in the compound and they meet the other, the general, or you know, uh, Mayfield's old general, and the one that Mayfield ends up shooting, but they need to get into some kind of security system, and he but goes... we don't see he, his face. He takes his helmet off. Yeah, and then, the, and then the general comes over, and then they end up sitting down. So it's like him, Mayfield the general, and Mando's got his helmet off, because at the end... Uh, Mayfield's oh, like, I didn't see anything. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that like, yeah, that bit. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying okay. to remember. Oh, you mean, you been a while mean okay. Like, yeah, I feel like just him having a face reveal is like way too uh, early okay. on. Because it, it's kind of like made a big deal and then it undermines it. And then we and then we see it again. And it, I don't know. Maybe it's just me because I'm a fan of like keeping keeping the hidden face thing. You know, I watched Naruto and was obsessed with Kakashi, so... <laughs> <laughs> He also he also took it off in season one, right? But it was just with the droid. There was no two types. Well, yeah, one he was alone, and then the other was the droid. But that's a droid, so that felt different. And there's times where he's had his helmet off, but we haven't seen his face. Like he takes his helmet off and he puts it down because the whole point is that he doesn't show his face. face. Human. It's not that he can't take the helmet off. Yeah, it's his code. Yeah, I think I think it. It is interesting point, though. Do you feel it would have been a much more powerful moment in the final episode when he took it off for Grogu if that was the first time he had decided to take off his helmet in front of others for this moment? Whereas, because he'd already taken it off in the in an episode or two earlier to sneak into the spaceship or the base, whatever that um that is sort of undercuts the power of him making that decision because he's already made the decision once. Yeah. I feel like it would have been better, but I still think it would have been too early. I feel like in we, I feel like we shouldn't have seen his face at all in the whole in the, oh, whole, the whole two thing. seasons that are out. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I don't know uh, Pedro Pascal. Got to, you got you got to let people know like he's the one uh, leading this thing at some point. <laughs> I was I I personally was just so it's, I just remember feeling so much disappointment. Like <laughs> <Or> Pedro. <laughs> Not, not like, that it no was bomb. him, but no. just it was like this is too soon. There's not been enough. Like there's, there's, no, I haven't had enough time with the helmet on. Like, and I, because I was like, oh, I was like, why do I feel so disappointed? I was like, oh, because they made such a big deal out of it, and then undermined it so easily. It seemed rushed. It seemed a bit like to me. It seemed a bit fan servicey. I think if they hadn't had shown his face when he went into that base and they'd done something else sort of story-wise but i would have been okay with nothing up until the final episode when grogu says goodbye i feel that would have been for me that would have been for worthy and i would have been okay if like we'd never seen his face until that uh until that yeah. moment like, i, I, I would have felt mean. better 
but I yeah. still would have thought it was still a bit yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think season three is when the face reveal should have happened. Mm. I was just thinking, Ella, when I was watching it, how good it was that they allowed him to keep his helmet on for so much of it. Yeah. Because it's such a powerful statement to have essentially your one main character with the helmet on the other time the whole time and the second main character doesn't speak because it's a bait yeah and you know this sort of how you tell a story with a helmet and how you emote and connect with mando when he's got this helmet on the whole time i think it's it's really powerful filmmaking mm. that they can do that and, and part of part of me contrasted it recently I, i've just started watching the wheel of time and okay. they have character in it who's who again their whole creed is that they wear a wear a veil when they're fighting and in this first episode when you really get to not in the first episode but in the first episode where you really get to see one of these warriors they don't have their veil on when they're fighting the whole time and for me it was just such a mistake and i think they could have had the same scene and upheld this creed of these warriors in that scene if they'd kept the veil on mm. but they obviously decided to drop it to so that the viewer could identify more strongly with the character in the scene and i think they're trying to do the same thing here identify which moments you start seeing mando question his beliefs and make decisions and undercut like take these steps that every step he takes is taking him further and further away from his creed i mean he already broke He's breaking all these rules, one after the other, all for Grogu. Grogu. And Mayfield calls him up on. He says, "You know, you said this, but now you're doing this. So, you know, what is this? What is this creed about?" Yeah. So I was ready for it, but yeah, I get your point. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to. I always like to take away themes and things from the stories, and the the obvious one is the fatherhood, parenting. So this being a uh, a story about an orphan and we see some of the flashbacks for uh, for Mando coming across a child that is alone, picking him up, protecting him, uh, growing attached and then kind of sacrificing for him, whether it's like in the moment of uh, any particular sort of fights or arguments or as we just mentioned, his, his code, like sacrificing uh, some of his beliefs maybe in in service of like protecting the uh, the child so I found that was a really compelling thing and and as we were talking about world building and making this massive universe but making the stakes relatively small scale but more relatable and you know you don't have to be a, a Star Wars fanatic to understand parenting you don't even have to be a parent to, to understand <laughs> that um, relationship and that's like a, a good element of the storytelling and then an interesting one for me is this idea of loyalty because Mando is like super loyal, like obviously to Grogu, but even to his like his friends because uh, we see Cara Dune, who we haven't actually mentioned in the characters, but she was a really compelling character and how he kind of goes back, goes back to her in terms of like he knows what she's about and when he needs to get Grogu, he goes back to, to her because she know he knows that she'll kind of get help get the job done and he's a very loyal character um yeah i don't know what you you both thought about that in terms of like the, the themes of loyalty around mando yeah there is an extreme sense of loyalty and that his loyalty isn't isn't to like his loyalty is to people yeah 
it's not to any organization, funnily enough, even though it's part of a cult. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he's very much attached to people and like people that he has had an interaction with um, and feels like there's some loyalty, like loyalty is earned with him. It's not just a given. Yeah. And even when I mentioned uh, Cobb, when he goes to that, that town and he's got the uh, Mandalorian armor, but he's not a uh, Mandalorian. And by the end, because they've sort of been through defeating that dragon, uh, sand dragon thing, like he earns that respect, he earns that uh, loyalty, and his views change. So I feel that there's an, in, even in that interaction, in that episode, there's a loyalty that is earned by or from Mando to Cobb. So it's like a very much like a, like you say, loyalty to, to people and not just because, it's like, I know you we've fought together or whatever it is there's a connection there i think it's like his sense of he has such a strong moral sense of what he believes is right and wrong and what respect looks like and what you know he i think he has a lot of complexity to him and he would he respects people even if they're not necessarily what we would have called good in the abstract sense like the way he respects he respects the mining miners and the marshal in the exact same way he respects uh, the traditions of the Tuscan Raiders, and he has space in his worldview for both of those things to be true. Mm. And see him, he isn't. He's got, not going to pick sides. It's not that kind of loyalty. But but he, I think he he recognizes people who are trying to do their best in the world, and he respects that. And he has no time and no patience for people who are self-interested or, or he, he demonstrates no loyalty to the criminals, for instance. Yeah. You know, he, he, he gets paid. He delivers his prisoner, the prisoner to um, the fellow, I can't remember his name, the fellow who hires him to break this guy out of prison and leaves a tracker with them because he doesn't like them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he respects them. He's like, I did, I did my part. I have, I have no a code. More. You've paid me to do a thing. I will do the thing, even if I think it's wrong, but I'll do the thing. But then I'll make sure, because I don't like you and I don't like your way of doing business, that uh, the rebels find you. <laughs> so I think, uh, yeah, loyalty, I, um, I wasn't, maybe wouldn't have been a word I, I would have thought about but it's an interesting way to see his behaviors and and how he sees the world yeah i think one of the things he practices is forgiveness as well you know he does forgive mm. grief because yeah. they have a, i forgot they had a whole shootout thing <laughs> but you know it's just business but he he forgives and they and they get together again yeah and i think that's <laughs> a part of like rena said his worldview it's not about sides and it's not about necessarily like picking a side or he's not the judge of what is right and wrong, but he respects people for trying to do what's best. It's uh, interesting. And then that kind of links to, as we mentioned, his, his code, because um, he definitely has a very, I was going to say strict, but it does change and evolve, but he has a very firm moral code that you see evolve over the over the two seasons and it's that like i mentioned those characters along the way that sort of make him question that including that um i guess uh, boba fett in in a way it also does that it makes him or adds to that sort of questioning of my my worldview and what does it mean to be mandalorian and um how important is it that 
uh, I don't show my face in, in every situation. So, yeah, it is interesting to see his evolution and especially, you know, moments aside where he does show his face, but especially as a character that doesn't show their face, like you, you kind of, you go on his journey, even though he doesn't show his face for 99% of the show, which is quite impressive. This is the theme I'm finding most interesting because I think it reflects well. I mean, all these themes are similar to themes in the wider Star Wars universe. I mean, of course, Star Wars is coming down with orphans, with father, <laughs> father complexes, right? Yeah. <laughs> Who has my father? You know, um, <laughs> but but this one about questioning questioning a code and essentially an organized religion or a cult or a sort of a very mm. narrow set of rules that you either do all these things and you're in or break one of them and you're out and i think that that's um i think this is going to be the one which and i'm going to pin my flag to it here i'm going to make a prediction that this is the theme that's going to evolve into season three as we see mando starting to evolve his understanding as you say of what is a mandalorian but then also will take the same look at the jedi and go well is the jedi code the right is it right is it okay to suppress all your emotions to remove all of your human connections will grogu be able to do that in order to be a jedi is he going to accept that way of life and the strict rules that go along with it will he be able to do that um and become a jedi and leave behind mando and all his connections because that's what they ask they have this very strict understanding if you don't mm. do this then you can't be a jedi you're out and i think the this is the one that's uh we've seen a little bit of it with uh, ashoka i think she also questions what jet being a jedi means and we're seeing questioning what a, a mandalorian is and i think we'll see more of that in season three and if we don't i've not put any money on it so it's fine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to see from season three tazzy Oh, you love to ask me tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Um, well, you know, I feel like you know me. I feel like our listeners know me. I'm just here for the ride. Yeah. I don't know what I want. I want the unexpected. I want the things that I can't predict. Yeah. That's what I want. <laughs> well, yep. <laughs> Tazzy's staying true to her values and her code. I, you know what, I'm actually gonna go with you and most because like i mentioned i feel like i don't know enough about the star wars universe to make predictions of what should or shouldn't happen so i i really have no expectations i just i feel that this is a great show it's a very accessible way into the star wars universe and yeah just give me more <laughs> I'm, I'm here for it give me more so i've got no real uh, expectation although saying that it will be interesting to see how because the show for two seasons has become such about the relationship between Grogu and Mando and now it, there seems to be some distance physical distance at least between them how the show can evolve where they may not be together as much and will that change the nature of the show for that you know casual audience will that change the way it's perceived if I don't see as much Baby Yoda I don't know but I'd be interested to see how they, uh, how they I... handle that I have had that fall as well. I'm like, oh my God, like, is it? Yes, is it. I feel like there's not, it's not going to be the Mandalorian and Grogu now. Yeah. And if it is, I feel like it won't be right anyway, as much as I may or may not want it. But I realize I love the Mandalorian 
on his own. Like his character is is cool. So think I'm okay if we have just Mandalorian for some scenes, but <laughs> Okay. Well I'll I'll see and then I'll I'll, I'll check Twitter and see what the people <laughs> what, <laughs> what the people say. say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um yeah no we this is like such a fantastic show we can talk about it for ages we just like scratch the surface but uh we have to end the podcast uh at some point before we spill over into 2022 so let us know your thoughts especially if you can inform us on on things that we can look out for in a constructive way in season three that will be cool too let us know as always you can give us your feedback on this episode on other episodes make sure you subscribe because we're going to be talking more stories in 2022 but before we leave let's check in with our guest so if you are regular listeners of the podcast you'll know that whenever we have a guest on the podcast we like to hear a bit about what they do um, and where you can also find them. So, Rena, tell us a bit about yourself and any interesting projects you've got coming up and also wherever everyone can find you online. Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find online. I use my own name. So <laughs> very subtle, undercover. I call myself my own name. So you can find me on Twitter or Instagram where I post sporadically as Rena.McKeith or, or Rena McKeith, depending on the handle. And as to what I'm up to, well, I think when last time we were chatting, I had just about to start in my new role in Trees Please Games and really excited to join them. We're on a mission to create games that not only are entertaining and fun and easy to pick up and play, but also do good in the world. So we're very excited. Our first project is well underway. Um Next time I talk to you, I'm sure I'll be able to send a link. But at the moment, it's um, still under wraps and slightly secret, so I can't say too much about it. But we're really excited to share it with all of you. We're slowly unfolding the journey of Rena's career over episode, from episode to episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. Yeah, I'll drip feed it in that. <laughs> but um, yeah, we're very close to being able to talk more fully about it, so... Um, if you want to check out Trees Please, you can find us on Trees Please Games. And more than happy to answer any questions you might have once I'm allowed to. But in the meantime, this time of year, I'm always open and looking for new mentees. I, I do mentoring and I also do portfolio reviews. So if you want something like that, the best place to find me is on LinkedIn. That's kind of where I do more of that sort of professional side of things. If you find me on LinkedIn, reach out. I'm happy to give either, you know, a portfolio review, which usually is about an hour, or talk about doing mentoring. If you'd like to, you or um, someone you know is part of a minority or underrepresented groups in games and looking for a bit of support in getting into the games industry, I usually do some mentoring and we can work out what's the best schedule for you. But yeah, reach out um, on LinkedIn. Happy to help everyone. It's a great industry. Come on, join us. <laughs> Come on in. <laughs> Come on in. The water is lovely. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, so we'll make sure we add any links to the uh, show notes. And yeah, Rena, thank you for joining us again and uh, coming back as uh, we always appreciate when people do. Well, thanks for inviting me back. Uh, as you know, I'm always sitting here waiting, taking notes on anything <laughs> I watch on the off chance that you'll ask <laughs> me back on again. 
<laughs> yeah, no, uh, that is that's appreciated. We we like when people are, are stood by their laptops, just ready for us to call them back on the show. That makes our job much easier. So appreciate that too. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Story X Story, uh, make sure you subscribe, especially as we go into 2022 and start with season four of the podcast. In the meantime, you can also go on whatever platform allows you to rate podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a review. This helps us reach new listeners and fans of story discussions. And speaking of stories, don't forget to check out our own stories on the My Matter website. We have a number of titles uh, available, including the new release, Serious Through the Fog, which just came out as of November. So make sure you check that out. And uh, yeah, dive into the world, the universe of Maya Matter. Uh, you can also join our Discord and check out our Studio 77 membership for exclusive access to gamepad events and content for the Maya Matter universe. We are going to be releasing new episodes every Thursday, even while we are on our recording break. So as I mentioned, there will be some best ofs uh, of the year, sort of highlights from the year. Tazzy and I have our best story wrap up of the year and then we have bonus episodes over January so make sure you're subscribed new episodes will be released on Thursdays that will include creator interviews video game discussions and deep dives into stories across pop culture uh, you can always give us a shout directly our email address is feedback at mymatter.com and our website with links to subscribe is mymatter.com forward slash story x story so thank you all for tuning in uh, and until next time Stay safe and we will see you in 2022. That's a lot of twos. Well, take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.